welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your regular host, Kelsey Sumnicht, but this is one of our special correspondent episodes. So I'm very excited to introduce you to Rebecca Picard. She's your guest host for this episode and the start of a series on culinary diplomacy. Hi, Rebecca. Tell us about yourself, your studies, and what brings you passion for international relations. Yeah, so I am a Midwestern girl, always and forever. But when I started taking German in junior high, my world completely opened up to travel, international relations, foreign policy, diplomacy, all of that. And this was also kind of the time of 9-11 and the Iraq War. So it was also an introduction to me to protest democracy having a voice, conflict, peace, all of these things laid the foundation for where I am now, I think. Um, and then additionally, I worked in restaurants for 10 years, and I'm not quite done with that, but that's where my food world totally exploded. So co combining these passions for food and for international relations created a little um, culinary diplomacy baby, if you will, although I didn't have the word to describe what that was until the last couple of years when I went to grad school at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. And I changed all my focuses there to culinary diplomacy and food justice, food access, food everything, once I put words to the things that fascinated me and gave me passion. Um, it was kind of an uphill battle. A lot of my pro professors and colleagues there thought I was crazy and that the concepts I was talking about weren't real or whatever. But the way that I look at it is, um, isn't that kind of the exact space where genius grows? So what fascinates you in particular about food diplomacy and culinary diplomacy, especially what sort of power or potential come with those terms? Food diplomacy specifically is what we talk about when we talk about using food aid as a tool of public outreach and um, reducing global hunger. And this is a more well-known development and diplomatic tool and something that I find super important. And actually, it's where I'm looking to work right now on a more local and community level in D.C., but this is to be distinguished from culinary diplomacy, which is to say is a little more fascinating, like you said, for me. Um, culinary diplomacy is defined as the use of food and cuisine as an instrument to create cross-cultural understanding and uh, improve relations and cooperation. And I think that that's really fascinating because there's so many levels and ways that culinary diplomacy can be used among citizens and then all the way up to heads of state. So we're talking about the nuances and politics of state dinners, how nations brand themselves through their cuisines to create more positive images and to attract tourists. Um, how citizens are helping to integrate and create community with refugees and immigrants and things like that. So I'm looking for it everywhere and it can easily be found everywhere. I mean, a good example that I like to use is when Donald Trump posted a picture of himself eating a taco bowl in kind of a ridiculous attempt to gain Mexican supporters after accusing them of being rapists and thieves. This was kind of a poorly thought through and frankly, kind of pathetic like situation, but that's an example of culinary diplomacy that's super clear and easy to understand for people. Why do you think it's important that we know about this topic as we embark on being the next generation of global leaders? I wanted to bring this to women in diplomacy listeners because I'm really excited about the topic and I think that others are too, whether they can label it before listening to my series or not. 
I mean, women around the world play a huge and important role in conflict resolution, peace building, cooking, maintaining their family's nutrition, culture, heritage through food, but it's not always seen as an important role of diplomacy. So I really wanted to highlight the different ways that women can be diplomats and ambassadors of their own cultures, and also to facilitate a platform for people coming from elsewhere to do the same for themselves. Yes. So tell us about your series. Why did you choose your particular guests and why are you excited to have us meet them? I think the series is really exciting because it is such a new topic for most people. But um, the first interview that you'll hear in the series is my friend Kelsey Marr. And I chose Kelsey because she is a practitioner of culinary diplomacy and also my co-host on our podcast, The Culinary Citizen, where we introduce themes connecting food and people around the world, which is exactly what Um, I'm talking about with the Women in Diplomacy series as well. And Kelsey has been really deep into this world for years. So she's the perfect introduction to culinary diplomacy for listeners to really understand like what it is, how it works. Um, And then second, I brought on Margaret and Amanda, and they are the women behind the organization Better Plate Community in Columbus, Ohio. And also two of their chefs that they work with, Kukwa and Bidisha. And I was really excited to meet them because they're a satellite organization of a German organization in Berlin called Über den Tellerrand that I learned about when I lived there. And their goal is to promote cross-cultural exchange through food-related community events like dinners and cooking classes. So it was really fun to hear how regular citizens like you and me can play a role in bringing their community together through culinary diplomacy. And it was also super fun to hear Kukwa and Badish's point of view and their stories as kind of, they're like the audience to this organization. So it was nice to get their side of it as well. And then finally, I decided to go to the opposite end of the spectrum. And I was really lucky to speak with Ambassador Earthering Cousin, formerly of the World Food Program. And she's definitely more on the side of food diplomacy, like we talked about earlier, over culinary diplomacy, because she is an incredible hunger warrior. But as an ambassador, she participated in a million different culinary diplomacy things like ambassadorial entertaining and going to the Milan World Expo, which at the time was feeding the planet energy for life. So it was perfectly situated within this topic. Um, And I really loved all my guests. They all do super important work and they're all really interesting women. But it was exciting to speak with Earthrain just because she is really an inspiration to women everywhere and an example of how high we as women can climb in international relations and diplomacy and the food world as well. Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm Special Correspondent Rebecca Picard, your host for this episode and for a Women in Diplomacy series on culinary diplomacy. My guest today is Kelsey Marr, International Programs and Events Manager at the Northern California World Trade Center, as well as creator and, full disclosure, my co-host on the podcast, The Culinary Citizen. Welcome, Kelsey. Hey, Rebecca. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Culinary diplomacy is defined as the use of food and cuisine as an instrument to create cross-cultural understanding to improve interactions and cooperation. This is a pretty academic definition, so I'd love to hear you expand on this. Like, what is culinary diplomacy and what does it mean to you? To me, culinary diplomacy is using food as a way to communicate culture. And for me, I really like 
culinary diplomacy in the lens of people to people. So not necessarily, we can go into the other branches, but when it, it involves governments, I think if we think of culinary diplomacy, when we're interacting with our friends, our families, our neighbors, um, we're always learning something new through dishes and through someone else's kitchen and their meals. Can you tell us a little bit more about the three branches of culinary diplomacy? In the first season of The Culinary Citizen, Sam and I sat, Sam Chapel Sokol, he's well known in the field, and we sat down and we had a conversation about these three branches that we were noticing in programming. So the first one is gastro diplomacy. It's that interaction between government and government. So think of state dinners, heads of state meeting over food, the club de chef de chef, which Sam had actually worked in or worked with in previous years. The next branch would be culinary nation branding. And so that's from government to people. And we were seeing a lot of this in the early 2000s. So that's chef exchanges like we have here in the US. Our chefs go abroad to like Kyrgyzstan and cook amazing barbecue. Wish I could have been there. But South Korea also has a really well-known program as well as Thailand. Another example of this would have been the Milan Expo in 2015. And then the third one, which is the one I really focus on because my higher, my higher education degree is in, well, citizen diplomacy, is cultural diplomacy, and that's people to people. So examples of like this type of culinary diplomacy you'll hear on our podcast, it's places like the Conflict Kitchen, it's pop-up dinners, sometimes it can be educational programming that uses food as a tool to communicate as well as I would even consider restaurants and cookbook authors. You've had a lot of experience as a culinary practitioner over the past few years, and that kind of makes you a culinary diplomat, in my opinion. How do you see yourself as a culinary diplomat? So I think it's been really interesting in my career that I've been involved in almost all the different kinds or branches of culinary diplomacy. So in that way, I do understand where you think I am a culinary diplomat. At the nation-to-nation level, that's my current job. I work on International Visitor Leadership Program, which is for the State Department. I work in Sacramento, which is the farm to fork capital. And so I specialize, I would say, in farm to fork programming. So people from other nations over here. Uh, They're mostly professionals. They learn about all of the different ways their colleagues or counterparts in the U.S. are doing things. So we've had really cool programming of famous bartenders from around the world. We've had some dairy farmers come through. We do enjoy those programs and we also have some food and safety programming where we share more practical and uh, policy related tips. And of course, we do other kinds of programming. Sacramento is known for its work in the environment, being the state capital. And also, unfortunately, we do have a lot of resources for uh, human trafficking. So I think like in the gastro diplomacy government to government, what I do now, 
Um, I also used to work for the California Olive Oil Council. I did marketing and taste panel facilitation. So that not necessarily is government to people, but it's definitely branding for one certain part of a country out to the world. And basically I was part of the staff that worked on making sure that olive oil grown in California was extra virgin olive oil and up to international standards. And then finally, in cultural diplomacy, I was most recently working with the local food bank where Sacramento is one of the most diverse populations in the United States. And I was working along with the IRC and their new roots program here to create culturally relevant CSAs for um, people who were on food stamps. We have like a lot of recent refugees. They're not refugees, although there are some refugees still being brought in. Um, they're immigrants with SIV, which is a special visa status for interpreters that helped our military. So we have a lot of those families here in Sacramento, and we were just trying to create affordable, fresh, organic, local produce that they knew how to use, because oftentimes people are not necessarily aware of how to use products. Like if I gave you a bitter melon, Rebecca, would you know how to use it right off the bat? I feel like I had to do a couple of Wikipedia searches for that. <laughs> I could not. That's one that I probably could not. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, it's pretty hard. Um, so just making sure that we were providing those kinds of produce that people were, were familiar with and also kind of slowly exposing them to new things like kale. <laughs> well, plus you're bringing the wider population into the citizen-to-citizen -citizen world through the podcast. What kind of episodes are yeah. you doing this season? This season, we are focusing mostly on initiatives that are dealing with immigrants or refugees. We've had a plethora of American organizations with whom we've spoken. And then we're also branching out to a few in Europe. So I'm really excited to share all of our conversations with our listeners. So I know that you were living and working in the Caucasus. Was that kind yeah. of your introduction to this world or were you having, you know, kind of life experiences before that, that got you into this field? I guess like an easy way to think of it is in college and let's be honest, middle school through high school, I was your typical overachiever. I graduated college with multiple degrees and I think at the time it was like a four page CV. It was in my words, grotesque, like clearly I was seeking external validation, I think perhaps clearly to everyone but me, and I knew I needed a break. And I had been the Russian club president for two years at my university, the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And this woman had come in and she brought Ajururi Hachapuri, which for all of you who follow food trends nowadays, it's this magical bread boat full of cheese with a partially cooked egg in it. And you mix it and you just dip the bread boat in the cheese. 
And I was like, oh, my God, I have to go to the country where this is normal. So I decided I did not want to go into the workforce after I graduated. I needed a break to kind of calm down, to figure out who I was outside of my student identity. And I decided to sign up for the Teach and Learn with Georgia program. It's a really interesting initiative that was sponsored by the Georgian government that invited native English speakers from all over the world to come teach for teaching villages to children of ranging ages. And I was lucky enough to live with a host family that owned a tourist restaurant. So I got to learn not only how to cook Adoruli Hachapuri, but all the kinds of Hachapuri there. I learned three. I think there's up to five. Each region has a different Hachapuri, but also some other dishes. And that led to more of an exploration of the region. And I think the coolest moment and the moment that kind of like sunk in what I wanted to do, but wasn't quite confident in saying it was after the Georgian contract, I was in Kyrgyzstan and I had switched all of my Russian language lessons to only be food related. So by that time I was doing cooking classes. I was going to the bazaar to learn how to make lipyoshka, which is like a stamped bread that they make kind of looks like naan, but it's super pretty with all the stamps. And I remember I was obsessed with the Michael Pollan and Alice Waters Berkeley class on iTunes View. And then I was also obsessed with the Splendid Table, which they now have a new host. And at the time, Sam was on the podcast with Joanna Mendelson Foreman. And I knew after listening to the conversation about their conflict cuisine course, that that is what I was supposed to do. That is what I wanted to do. Now, it's taken so many more years after that to have the belief in myself that it's something I want to do. And it's something that I still struggle with today because unlike a lot of professions, both a curse, a blessing and a curse, there's no straight path. So it's something that I'm constantly working on to find what fits for me in the realm of culinary diplomacy. So did you have any interest in food before that introduction to Kachapuri or was that kind of your first foray into the food world? For me, it's going to sound super goofy, trite. It's really, uh, I'm like getting awkward <laughs> on radio, but um, to me, it represents love. You know, when I was growing up, gardening was essential to my family, even though we didn't depend on it. I also remember when I was younger, my dad and I would explore the world through food. We would cook through this Asian cookbook. He was um, an Asian and economics major, majors in college. He ended up choosing a path that uh, really provided for our family, but not necessarily in his interest or passion. And so we would cook together. And that's kind of how I started traveling the world, not necessarily by buying a plane ticket, which I try to do 
regularly now, but by cookbooks and trying to find those ingredients and learning those traditional ways of cooking food. You mentioned that it's a little bit difficult and that there's not really a straight path and it's taking you a while, which I think is pretty common in a lot of fields. But what other challenges do you encounter in this work? Like for me, for example, I Mm -hmm. just trying to bring it up, you know, when I was doing my graduate degree, people thought I was crazy. Like my professors were like, oh, that's silly. Um, Like that's the word they used. And I don't know. I think people just didn't really think it was a real thing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And so convincing people that this work is real and that, for example, the State Department had a program doing this, you know, doing culinary diplomacy, like it's real. Yeah, I think it's just putting a label or a name to a lot of different actions. It's really fascinating. Both you and I come from the same school, uh, graduate school. And people in my my major, I think I come from a much more touchy-feely major. (laughs) They're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. (laughs) So I actually had a lot of support from my my. Um, I guess, mentors and um, professors to pursue it. So, so like when I came back from, so I did, after Kyrgyzstan, I went to Russia. In Russia, I really realized I'm really passionate about food because I went through like this whole diet thing where I couldn't really eat. And in Russia, things are expensive that aren't expensive here, like uh, cheese, like foreign cheese. In Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, that wasn't even a thought. It was like, thank God there's cheese, <laughs> you know, or and, and I can afford it because I was living on native wages. So when I went to Miss, uh, I really wanted, I had this brilliant plan. I would work for the State Department in the ECA. And so I would work for them, connecting myself with women or young girls in villages to help them come to the U.S. Uh, We have a program like that, especially for the former Soviet Union. And in these villages, I would make connections. And then I would eventually open a cafe in the U.S. and help sponsor people to come over here to share their food. And they would get business experience as well as share their food with whatever town I was living in and had this cafe. Essentially a food incubator. I mean, (laughs) we've spoken to a lot of amazing food incubators that already exist. (laughs) But it was like my roundabout way of getting to it. And whenever I would articulate this to career counselors, they would be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, why are you in this major that has nothing? I was an education major that has really nothing to do with this. (laughs) And I'm like, we're educating people about culture through food. And so I think that was one of the biggest roadblocks of like when people say no like you just need to find someone else who will say yes for me it was unfortunately really in the realm of career and finding jobs but I found those supports or supporters through other departments through the most unlikely professors and I think for me the hardest part was In the time when I was going through this growth phase, I was not in the healthiest of relationships and had really lost my identity that I have attached to food. Like most people know me, I will talk about food, I will bring food, I will cook food, I want to cook food with you. Like that's kind of my life. 
And in this relationship, I had really let that go. And part of healing and reclamation of myself after the relationship was lost was this acceptance of, I don't have to fit in the box of what my people in my degree want me to be. I want to do this. So how can I take the skills and the knowledge that I've learned in this graduate program to create a career that I want to do and that I'm super passionate about? So people in the real world, I haven't had too much trouble about. Like, I remember I went in for one job interview and I was like, I am all about cultural diplomacy. And like, this is how you would talk about it. And it was like at, at a like um, a poetry club, there's there was just like snaps in the background. So like some people get it and those are your people and other people, it's, it's a harder sell. It really is. Because this is a women-focused podcast, what role do you see women playing in this field? Because often we see like the loudest players in the culinary world are usually men and men's voices we're hearing the most, but women have a, have a large role to play. I think about this on a couple of parts. First off, Hillary Clinton established the U.S. State Department Chef Exchange. So if we have leaders at the top creating those programs, we have opportunities or more opportunities. So it's about those women at the top creating opportunities for women to follow. I also think culinary diplomacy is a field that is women-centric, unfortunately, which is why I don't really focus on gastro diplomacy. I think it's a very male-dominated or has traditionally been very male-dominated because if you look back in history, the occupation of chef and paid chef was male dominated. And when you think about who are actually feeding those men at home, who are feeding families, who are growing communities in the kitchen, it's women. And so I think more of the citizen to citizen cultural diplomacy, cultural culinary diplomacy, we have a lot more say and voice as women. And, you know, we've seen this in the podcast. Amy Rolio considers herself a culinary diplomat, and I wouldn't disagree. And she's a great example of a female creating her own career by just visiting embassies in DC and beefing up her culinary skills to the point where she's, I forget what king she cooked for, but she was his chef. And a lot of the organizations, the leaders in the organizations that we've spoken to this this season have been women. So I think we as women, because of our traditional gender roles, we can leverage that to create careers and beef up the field. I was a little worried about sounding sexist. (laughs) No, I mean, I don't think that that's sexism. I think that gender roles are... I mean, you mentioned traditional gender roles and though, you know, gender is a social construct and that's what has been projected on women, you know, basically Mm -hmm. since the beginning of time. And so we're not really talking about women versus men. We're talking about what women are supposed to do based on this like fake gender construction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think with like that fake gender construction, like the base knowledge that you get in your own upbringing Plus, all the skills that women are getting in college these days, there's so much opportunity for women to really expand the field. I really do agree and think it's 
true. On that note, what career advice would you give to young women who are interested in pursuing a similar career path to you or just a career in some level of culinary diplomacy? I would say like kind of tail ending on that last conversation point, I would say really become aware of how you've been socialized. I think that's the first point because that is going to affect how you manage your career. In the framing of that, I would say women are traditionally good students because we've been socialized to respond to others, kind of in that caretaking role. But if you have a teacher that says, what is the answer to this question, women will respond or women will want to please that people pleasing sense. Um, That doesn't really work in the real world, (laughs) which really sucks. And I think to create your own career, you have to have agency and strength and confidence in who you are and the skills and an an idea of where you want to go. That way you can make decisions of positions or create your own business of where you want to go with that. It makes saying the no's easier and the yeses easier. I would say also if you're just starting out in this field and you're kind of interested, but you don't really know much about it or where you fit in, I would say reach out to anyone in the field. We're so lucky that this field is still pretty small to where if you reach out to someone, you're most likely going to speak to them. You're not going to speak with their representative or their assistant. You're talking directly to them. And what I found in this field is people are really willing just to share their experience, share what they know, and to help the next generation. So that's either like sending an email to them, feel free to email me, reach out to people on LinkedIn. That's really one of the most amazing ways to engage with people today is through social media. See if you can offer any assistance to them, build a skill yourself. I mean, a lot of these people, like I mentioned, you're directly talking to them. So they don't have a team. They're doing amazing work. Offer to build up your skill set, maybe work on their social media for a bit. See if you can offer them something in exchange for the knowledge and the network that they can offer you. As a last question, it's something that I'm going to ask all of my guests. What food symbolizes your identity? I really like the idea of um, eggplant, (laughs) mostly because it's so versatile and so many cultures use it that I could go anywhere and be an eggplant. Although it is a a nightshade, so it will kill some people. But other than that, I like it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kelsey, for taking the time and sharing your knowledge about culinary diplomacy with our listeners. Of course. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is called Misty Moses, and it's by the artist Rodrigo y Gabriela. Use of that recording is graciously provided by Rubyworks Records in Dublin, Ireland. For more information and to download more music by Rodrigo y Gabriela, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. Thank you.